Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is an associate professor at the Institute for Future Initiatives at the University of Tokyo in Japan. He works on scenario analysis of climate and energy policy and governance of climate engineering from a public engagement perspective. He holds a PhD in climate science and a master's degree in technology and policy both from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Prior to joining the University of Tokyo, he was a researcher at the Socioeconomic Research Center, the Central Research Institute of the Electric Power Industry. He is a lead author of the Working Group 3's contribution to the 6th Assessment Report for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I am excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Masahiro Sugiyama. Our interviewer today is Lisa Fries. Lisa is a PhD candidate in Atmospheric Sciences at MIT. She researches the intersection of social and earth systems, bringing together atmospheric chemistry, energy systems, climate, health and policy. She also works to incorporate community science and policy impacts into her research based on her prior work to her PhD with the Wilson Center's China Environment Forum and the Rock Energy and Environmental Institute in Beijing, China. Welcome to the show, Masa and Lisa. Thank you, Shazad, for the great introduction and welcome, Masa. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. So today I wanted to guide us through three key aspects of your expertise. The first is the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Sixth Assessment Report. The second is geoengineering, and the third is Japan's energy transition. We'll start off with the Sixth Assessment Report. So you were a lead scientist for the Working Group 3's Sixth Assessment Report, which is the part of the report that focuses on mitigation of climate change. There are two components to this that I'd like to ask you about. The first is the process, and the second has to do with the content of the report. So in regards to the process, could you tell us more about your involvement in the working group and how the process of developing this report went? So the IPCC, as you know, it is a United Nations science organization, and we do scientific assessment of climate change. It's a real global collaboration. This was my first time to join the IPCC. But if I say statistics, for instance, in the working group three, we had 278 authors from 65 countries. And so we worked several years together. It was a tough experience because of the COVID-19. Usually we have lead author meetings four times and we get together, but we only did a face-to-face meeting twice. And it was an extensive hour. We spent many hours sitting in front of computers talking to our colleagues somewhere in the world. But anyway, we managed. So in terms of the science, so basically we review both peer-reviewed and what's called great literature. So we look at many, many different papers and reports. In this report, there were 18,000 cited references. And this review goes through checks by experts and the governments. So there were two rounds of uh, expert reviews and a final round of governmental review. And we received a total of close to 60,000 view comments. And we authors had to respond to each of them. So it is significant effort and it's a global collaboration. 
and uh, it was great. It is uh, obviously one of the best science available when it comes to climate change mitigation. That's really impressive, the number of reviewer comments and the number of authors all brought together on just one report. One of the things that I noticed is that you were specifically involved in the 12th chapter, which was on cross-sectoral perspective. That chapter focuses on carbon dioxide removal, food system emissions and transformation, land-related impacts, and trade and financial impacts and mitigation. First off, that's a pretty broad chapter, and so I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about that chapter overall. And then the second question is, are there any key takeaways from that 12th chapter that you think we should take with us? Lisa, thanks for your good question. You spotted something important. So chapter 12 is a compilation of different topics, and it was quite difficult even for the authors. We struggled a little bit. Of course, these themes, each of them are quite important. Carbon dioxide removal, food system, and land implications, and other things. But combining them together in a chapter, that was quite difficult. A number of issues we touched on are quite new. For instance, CDR, carbon dioxide removal. It's an option that absorbs carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere to offset some of the residual emissions. And it's new. We were discussed, but we gave a substantial amount of pages to this topic for the first time. And the food system is also new. And that's why we don't have each chapter for carbon dioxide removal or food system. These issues are still growing and emerging. So that's the sort of editorial aspect of these topics. But because all these things are related to other sectors, we worked extensively with other sector chapters. I myself played around with some of the data from the integrated assessment models, big models to analyze mitigation. And I looked at how CDR was used in IAMs. So it was a great experience for me to work with the those from chapter three. And so these kind of collaborations were seen on many occasions. And I interacted with the scientists from both the developed and the developing economies. So that was also a great experience. So let's move on to the key takeaways from chapter 12. So there are many things that were covered in our chapter, but I would say two things. One is about CDR. So CDR refers to carbon dioxide removal. Think about planting trees. If you plant a tree, when it grows, it sucks carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So you can remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere, that's CDR. But there are many different options. There are many companies trying to do what's called the direct air capture. They use a chemical engineering technology to remove carbon dioxide. For instance, there's enhanced weathering. You grind rocks and spray them onto soil, or you can put them over coastal lines. And there are many different ways to reduce carbon dioxide and the concentration from the atmosphere. So CDR was mentioned in the previous assessment of the IPCC, but we made our emphasis much greater this time around. For instance, this is a statement from the summary for policymakers. Let me quote, the deployment of CDR to counterbalance hard to abate residual emissions is unavoidable 
if the net zero CO2 or GHG emissions are to be achieved, end quote. So we use a strong word unavoidable to express the need for CDR. The governments and the policymakers and the various companies, they are now talking about net zero emission pledges, for instance, by 2050. Japan, for instance, has a pledge to reduce emissions by 2050, to completely eliminate emissions by 2050. And to do that, basically, you need CDR. There are some emissions like methane, nitrous oxide, or some parts of carbon dioxide emissions that are extremely difficult to eliminate. And it's much more sensible to use some form of CDR. So that's one of our key messages. And rightly, governments and the corporations, they are talking about the number of CDR options these days. And there's often discussion about nature-based solution versus the engineering. But this is a bit confusing. For instance, what is bioenergy with carbon capture and storage? Is it bio or is it engineering-based? It's a combination of biomass energy use with carbon capture and storage engineering methodology. So instead of using these often used frameworks, we propose a new way to categorize CDR. So we distinguish the time scale of storage, such as like decades to centuries, centuries to millennia, and also the removal process. So for instance, a geochemical versus chemical versus photosynthesis or biological. The second key message is about costs and the potentials. So governments and stakeholders, international community is now aiming for containing global warming below 1.5 degrees. And uh, to do so, we have to reduce emissions approximately by half by 2030 and to zero by 2050. How costly is that? So our chapter looked at the costs and potentials, so how much it costs and how much emissions reduction various options can provide. And the results is quite encouraging. To reduce emissions by half compared to the 2019 level by 2030, these options cost 100 US dollars per ton of CO2 equivalent or less. And half of them is actually at $20 or less. So it is quite affordable. These things come from solar, wind, and energy efficiency, and it is encouraging. But I have to say this, these are not free of a cost. They come with costs. So the governments and the state policymakers, they have to implement the proper policies. Otherwise, these wouldn't materialize. So there are some options that we can use, and that's encouraging. So zooming out a little bit from the 12th chapter back onto the entire Working Group 3's report, which again is on mitigation of climate change. Would you be able to share with us a few key takeaways from that entire Working Group section? Thanks for an excellent question, Lisa. So there are many messages, but from my perspective, this is one of the most important takeaways. Some countries have began reducing emissions at a rate that is compatible well, let's say, two-degree targets, and that's encouraging. And some key technologies have reduced their costs significantly, for instance, solar, wind, and electric vehicles or batteries. And that was actually reflected in the cost and potential I just talked about. So overall, we have options, at least in the medium term. And that's encouraged. But if you look at the overall picture, the global picture especially, 
because now we are talking about global emissions, not the emissions of the United States or European Union or developed countries. We are talking about global emissions, emissions from China, India, Africa, Latin America, and that needs to reduce to zero by 2050 if we wish to achieve the 1.5 degree target. We need to do far more, much faster, much more broadly, and much more deeply. So that's the key message from the working group three, I would say. Thank you. That's both encouraging, but also is a lot of work that has to be done over the next 30 years to reach that goal. So I want to transition a little bit into discussing geoengineering. And I wanted to start mostly by asking you if you could introduce the key concepts of climate engineering. It's received a lot of increased attention lately as a potential component of the climate mitigation toolbox. So it would be really helpful to get a bit more of a definition and discussion of the different options that are being researched. Thanks, Lisa. So I have to confess that there has been a little bit of a confusion about terminology in the literature. I've been involved in geoengineering for years, and I was one of the participants in the expert workshop organized by the IPCC. So geoengineering is a large-scale human intervention in the climate system to counteract global warming. So it's intentional, it's large-scale, and it's direct intervention. And uh, if you look at the old report, let's say Royal Society report published in 2009, they mixed CDR, carbon dioxide removal, with solar radiation modification. I will explain that in a minute. But as I already talked about CDR, it's important and crucial. There's a debate about how much CDR we need and what kind of CDR we need. That's the debate, but whether we need it or not, that's not the debate. And actually, if you look at the technical definition of a CDR, it's part of a mitigation. So traditionally, the planting trees, afforestation, reforestation belong to the mitigation, right? And just like that, other CDR options are also considered as part of a mitigation. Solar radiation modification is different. So there are many different terminologies like words proposed climate intervention, solar reflection method, and solar radiation management, but the IPCC chose to use solar radiation modification. The idea is to reflect the sun sunlight back to space to cool the Earth. You can reflect the sunlight high up in the atmosphere or in space or at the surface or by brightening clouds. Clouds are white, but you can make it more brighter. Sometimes, actually, in the literature, they were lumped together in geoengineering. But the IPCC opposes lumping them together anymore because their technological characteristics, governance characteristics, many features are different between CDR and SRM. So I think the scientists have stopped using the word climate engineering or geoengineering unless they are talking about SRM in most instances. Great, thank you. That's a really helpful clarification of the difference between carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management. And one of the things that you brought up is 
the governance structures. And a lot of your work has focused on integrating social implications, risks, and benefits of climate engineering policy. What are the ethical, social, political aspects that you've been looking into and that are important to incorporate into research in this field? Yes, so governance is important not only for SRM, but also for CDR. And uh, let me talk about it. But first of all, because CDR is part of mitigation, there are a number of relevant international treaties and uh, regulations. So if we can leverage them, if we can them use it properly, we might add a few more detailed regulations, but CDR is mostly covered. And that's the first thing. But SRM is not. There is no international treaty that directly governs SRM, solar radiation modification. So why do we need governance? The first concern is something called the moral hazard or emissions reduction deterrence or mitigation deterrence. There are many different names. The idea is simple. If you know that, let's say, CDR is available, once you know that, would you actually reduce your efforts to reduce emissions. If CDR is available at a reasonable cost, why would you have to make a lot of sacrifices and efforts to reduce emissions? Would you rather just use CDR? And that applies to SRM as well. So the knowledge of SRM or CDR could reduce the incentives to mitigate, and that's called mitigation deterrence or moral hazard. That's the first concern. The other ethical concern is once you start research or development, then you would create the vested interest and all these communities have stakes in this particular technology might push for the deployment of this technology. And we would eventually deploy SRM or unfavored CDR options. So that's called a slippery slope argument. It's like the rock rolling on a slippery slope. Once it starts rolling, it can't be stopped. So the community has been discussing, and uh, I've been thinking about this uh, as well. And in some cases, uh, I pose these questions to the general public using an online survey. So given these two aspects, the first is this mitigation deterrence, and the second is the slippery slope argument. What do you think about continued research within SRM or CDR? And in what direction do you think more research needs to go in order to inform better decision-making and governance structure that can address these two issues? Thanks, Lisa. So it's a deep question, but let me change the perspective slightly. In the case of uh, moral hazard, there have been some empirical research into this subject, but these were limited to de developed countries, so OECD countries, rich economies. But why are we worried about SRM for large-scale CDR to begin with? Because we are interested in reducing climate risks, mostly for developing countries. The developed countries have money, resources, to deal with a little bit of climate change. Of course, there's limits to adaptation, but we can build a higher sea decks, we can change the crops we're gonna use, and there are many different options to adapt to climate change. But the people in Africa or some parts of South Asia, they are not well endowed and they will suffer. And we would like to reduce the climate risks for those people. And if you look at the literature, 
the discussion has been constrained to the global north or developed countries. For example, empirical studies on moral hazard, they have been confined to global north or developed countries. So we don't know what Africans might say about moral hazard or the slippery slope argument. Even ethical arguments have been only debated in global north. That's my impression. Maybe there are a few philosophers from global south, but that's not the major voice. And how would you see these ethical issues from the viewpoint of developing countries or global south? That's the key question. And I think to foster such a discussion, in my opinion, I will go back to the IPCC. The international body like IPCC should do scientific assessment not just the natural science, but social science and the humanities, assessment of solar radiation modification, and perhaps the CDR as well in the near future. Remember, a lot of publications are published by Global North scholars in English, but English is only one of the many languages available in the world. Even if you look at the offshore United Nations languages, there are six, right? Arabic, Chinese, Russian, Spanish, English, and French. And once you do an international report with the IPCC or United Nations framework, then there's an opportunity for us to publish the scientific finding in six languages. Of course, we need to do more. We need to involve more and more global South researchers and experts and the policymakers, stakeholders. But I think that's a, a start. Thank you. That's a really helpful perspective on not just thinking about what research should be, but who is involved in the research that we're doing and what bodies we can set up in order to make that inclusive, especially of those being the most impacted. I have to disclose something about myself. So I serve as a member of the advisory committee for the Harvard Scopex experiment. So it's a fairly controversial project. And uh, I support a certain type of research on geoengineering. I'm not saying about the Scopex because we are still debating and I cannot disclose what's been debated within the Scopex advisory committee, but I do support a certain type of research, but I oppose deployment of SRM given the significant uncertainty of this technology now. That's helpful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. So I think I'm going to transition to our final topic which is focusing more on Japan. And so just to set the stage a little bit, Japan's energy sector is quite unique. Up until 2011, a large share, my understanding is around 30% of the electricity production was from nuclear power. But then after the Fukushima nuclear disaster, that dramatically changed. And now it comprises somewhere around 7% of electricity production. This then led to increased use and imports of fossil fuels. And when we think about that within today's context, particularly with the war in Ukraine, there has been a big push internationally to reduce reliance on Russian oil and gas. And furthermore, just a few months ago, there was a magnitude 7.4 earthquake that struck Japan and led to a large number of coal power plants being shut down. And so based on this very complicated context, I have a few questions. So the first is, could you just give us a little bit more background on the transition away from nuclear power within Japan and what seems like a current push to actually bring it back online? This is an excellent question, Lisa, and it's quite tricky too. 
Let me give you some background about Japan itself. So Japan is a resource importing country and we have an aging population and we have a stagnant economy over the past 30 years. So our major interest concerns is not climate change or energy. We are worried about our daily paychecks. We are worried about social security, pension, things like that. And there has not been much political movement about nuclear power. Of course, we have environmental NGOs, but their presence is quite small or weak. We don't have any active Green Party. And since 2013, we haven't seen any change in the administration. It's been the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, and the Cometa. And the issue of a nuclear is quite unpopular among the voters. We know that based on the opinion poll, but media or politicians, they don't bring it to the ballot box. So we don't have a clear mandate about what to do with the nuclear. Are we going to remove this? Are we going to scrap nuclear entirely? Or are we going to use it on a small scale, maybe? It hasn't been discussed in an open manner. So the status quo continues. And whenever we have some shock, then a certain camp makes some gains and the political game continues. So that's my interpretation for what's happening. So some people now try to push nuclear back on the agenda, but that's not the politicians. It's more like bureaucrats, some of the industry players. But we need to talk about this issue at the political level. Otherwise, we would continue this strange stalemate of the nuclear politics. If we have a mandate to abolish nuclear power, we can prioritize renewables. But since we keep saying nuclear will play some role in the future, our renewable policy is lukewarm. So status quo continues. And so does that make it harder to think about then an energy transition and meeting the climate goals and the net zero goals for 2050? Let me back up a little bit and provide another background. So Japanese are not that concerned about climate change. That might run counter to your perception. But if you look at the international polling results, if you look at a number of different results, and I did some surveys by myself, Japanese are not concerned about climate change. And uh, if you recall what led to the mid-century pledge made by the ex-Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga in 2020. So before the Japanese pledge, China made a pledge, and Japan was a bit embarrassed to see that. So in reaction to it, he made a pledge internationally. That's my reading of the political events. And soon after Korea joined, so you can guess what happened. So at the political level, we made a pledge, but there's no broad support for the net zero energy transition. And that has not been discussed at the ballot box either. I don't know what would happen once we start implementing serious policies in terms of climate change, because the basic paychecks could be affected. We're going to see the impact on electricity bills or gas bills, right? And how would the public respond? Do we see something like the yellow vest movement in France? Or are we going to continue with the emissions reduction? I simply don't know. Let me give you an example of the weak climate movement in Japan. In 2019, there was a global climate strike in September led by Greta Thunberg from Sweden. And in Berlin, about 300,000 people gathered. In Shibuya, Tokyo, we saw only 3,000 people, factor of 100 difference. That's a huge difference. So yes, there are people interested 
in and are concerned about climate change in Japan, the number of such people is very small. That's really helpful context as far as the social background and what people's biggest concerns are. When we think about the amount, for example, of imported fossil fuels that keep the Japanese electricity grid running, and the fact that there have been outages when, for example, the coal power plants were shut down from this earthquake, are there concerns amongst people as far as the access they have to electricity or the cost of electricity, depending on a energy transition or a lack of an energy transition? Yeah, so people are concerned about both like energy security and also the energy bills. And it has been increasing because of the nuclear is not operating and the generally the fossil fuel prices have increased. So there's a serious concern about it. It's tricky business because we don't have many options because of the political statement of nuclear. We can't do much about it because we don't make up our mind about nuclear. We can't do much about renewables either. So we need to keep importing fossil fuels on a large scale. And actually, the reserve margin of the electricity grid is in a precarious situation. So you talked about the earthquake and the government warning and the citizens and the companies made a lot of efforts to reduce the electricity demand. And otherwise, we might have had a big blackout in Tokyo, but we avoided it. And this kind of situation might continue in the near future because our reserve margin is not large. One of them is, of course, the lack of nuclear power, but we can't do much about it. And I think perhaps we need to do a large-scale effort to reduce electricity consumption, energy demand, but we are not hearing that effort either. So even though Japanese citizens are not particularly focusing on climate change as their biggest issue that they're concerned about, giving other issues that are affecting their daily lives, Japan does have a nationally determined contributions. And I was interested in hearing about the, for example, Japan model intercomparison project, or in general, the direction of Japan's power sector and how it will meet these nationally determined contributions to reducing CO2 emissions? Nationally determined contribution refers to more or less like 2030 goal or 2025. And uh, it's a short-term goal. So I would rather talk about the long-term strategy or mid-century strategy, the 2050 goal. And uh, I've been, along with other scholars, I've been leading the effort called the Japan Mobile Intercomparison Project. And we compared the different models to understand the robust patterns of Japanese mitigation policy. And uh, the results are not surprising, except for a few interesting features. So let me say this, and this is uh, actually consistent with uh, what IPCC report is telling. There are a number of features that are common with global strategies. For instance, power sector decarbonization, and use electrification, demand reduction such as efficiency and sufficiency, and the introduction of clean fuels. And lastly, carbon dioxide removal. They are the key strategies that Japan needs to deploy, and we need to do far more. We don't have good concrete policies yet, but there are differences from the rest of the world. One is the cost. Let me get back to the costs and potentials I discussed with respect to the IPCC Working Group 3 report. A lot of the potentials come from solar and wind, 
because the cost of solar and wind have declined rapidly over the past decade. And it's great. It's great for the global community, not so in Japan. Solar and wind are expensive in Japan. We sort of know why this is the case, but we don't know whether and how we can reduce the cost to the international level. So if the main technology is expensive, the total cost of mitigating reducing emissions will also be expensive. So the cost of reducing emissions is expensive in Japan. That's one finding from our results. It may not be more expensive, but definitely we are on the expensive side compared to other countries. And uh, second is, uh, again, it's about renewables. If you look at the population density of Japan, it's quite high. And that means we don't have much land space for renewables or storage sites of carbon capture and storage. So it is going to be quite difficult to introduce, let's say, renewable 100% system on the soil of Japan. Or it would be very difficult for us to have many storage sites for CCS or CDR in Japan. Those are the key issues we found. I'm saying it's difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. When you hear the story from IPCC or other, let's say, international energy agency, the modeling has been done by the Western academics and researchers, and their perspective is heavily influenced by European or American perspectives. And a high population density country like Japan, we have a different situations. So we need to really do modeling in more detail by ourselves. After doing this kind of research, we have some basic understanding of the unique situation of countries like Japan with high population densities, but the more research needs to be done. Thank you. That was really helpful, especially the insights into thinking about the difference between a large-scale IPCC report and the domination of that by research that's done by scientists in Europe and America and what that informs versus the specific case of Japan. So thank you for that helpful insight. With that, I think we can close out and thank you so much for all of the helpful thoughts on so many interesting aspects of both climate and energy and policy. And thank you for letting me interview you. Thank you very much, Lisa. And I would also like to thank Shazard and his team for inviting me today. Thank you. With that, I would like to thank our guests, Dr. Masahiro Sugiyama and our interviewer, Lisa Fries, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.